Section eleven of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Woman by Margaret Fuller. Section eleven. Woman in the Nineteenth Century, Part Nine. It has been suggested by men who were pained by seeing bad men admitted freely to the society of modest women, thereby encouraged to vice by impunity and corrupting the atmosphere of homes, that there should be a senate of the matrons in each city and town who should decide what candidates were fit for admission to their houses and the society of their daughters. Such a plan might have excellent results but it argues a moral dignity and decision which does not yet exist, and needs to be induced by knowledge and reflection. It has been the tone to keep women ignorant on these subjects, or when they were not, to command that they seem so. It is indelicate, says the father or husband, to inquire into the private character of such an one. It is sufficient that I do not think him unfit to visit you. And so this man, who would not tolerate these pages in his house, unfit for family reading, because they speak plainly, introduces there a man whose shame is written on his brow, as well as the open secret of the whole town, and presently, if respectable still and rich enough, gives him his daughter to wife. The mother affects ignorance, supposing he is no worse than most men. The daughter is ignorant, something in the mind of the new spouse seems strange to her, but she supposes it is woman's lot not to be perfectly happy in her affections. She has always heard men could not understand women, so she weeps alone, or takes to dress and the duties of the house. The husband, of course, makes no avowal, and dreams of no redemption. In the heart of every young woman, says the female writer above quoted, addressing herself to the husband, depend upon it there is a fund of exalted ideas she conceals, represses, without succeeding in smothering them. So long as these ideas in your wife are directed to you, they are no doubt innocent. But take care that they be not accompanied with too much pain. In other respects also spare her delicacy. Let all the antecedent parts of your life, if there are such which would give her pain, be concealed from her. Her happiness and her respect for you would suffer from this misplaced confidence, Allow her to retain that flower of purity which should distinguish her in your eyes from every other woman. We should think so truly under this canon. Such a man must esteem purity an exotic that could only be preserved by the greatest care. Of the degree of mental intimacy possible in such a marriage let every one judge for himself. On this subject let every woman who has once begun to think examine herself see whether she does not suppose virtue possible and necessary to man, and whether she would not desire for her son a virtue which aimed at a fitness for a divine life, and involved, if not asceticism, that degree of power over the lower self which shall not exterminate the passions, but keep them chained at the feet of reason. The passions, like fire, are a bad muster, but confine them to the hearth and the altar, and they give life to the social economy, and make each sacrifice meet for heaven. When many women have thought upon this subject, some will be fit for the Senate, and one such Senate in operation would affect the morals of the civilized world. 
At present I look to the young. As preparatory to the Senate, I should like to see a society of novices, such as the world has never yet seen, bound by no oath, wearing no badge. In place of an oath they should have a religious faith in the capacity of man for virtue, instead of a badge, should wear in the heart a firm resolve not to stop short of the destiny promised him as a son of God. Their service should be action and conservatism, not of old habits, but of a better nature, enlightened by hopes that daily grow brighter. If sin was to remain in the world it should not be by their connivance at its stay, or by one moment's concession to its claims. They should succour the oppressed, and pay to the upright the reverence due in hero-worship by seeking to emulate them. They would not denounce the willingly bad, but they could not be with them, for the two classes could not breathe the same atmosphere. They would heed no detention from the time-serving, the worldly, and the timid. They could love no pleasures that were not innocent and capable of good fruit. I saw in a foreign paper the title now given to a party abroad, Los Exaltados. Such would be the title now given these children by the world, Los Exaltados, Las Exaltadas. But the world would not sneer always, for from them would issue a virtue by which it would at last be exalted too. I have in my eye a youth and a maiden whom I look to as the nucleus of such a class. They are both in early youth, both as yet uncontaminated, both aspiring without rashness, both thoughtful, both capable of deep affection, both of strong nature and sweet feelings, both capable of large mental development. They reside in different regions of the earth, but their place in the soul is the same. To them I look, as perhaps the harbingers and leaders of a new era, for never yet have I known mine so truly virgin, without narrowness or ignorance. When men call upon women to redeem them, they mean such maidens but such are not easily formed under the present influences of society. As there are more such young men to help give a different tone, there will be more such maidens. The English novelist Disraeli has, in his novel of the young duke, made a man of the most depraved stock be redeemed by a woman who despises him when he has only the brilliant mask of fortune and beauty to cover the poverty of his heart and brain, but knows how to encourage him when he enters on a better course but this woman was educated by a father who valued character in women. Still, there will come now and then one who will, as I hope of my young exaltada, be example and instruction for the rest. It was not the opinion of woman current among Jewish men that formed the character of the mother of Jesus. Since the sliding and backsliding men of the world no less than the mystics declare that, as through woman man was lost, so through woman must man be redeemed, the time must be at hand. When she knows herself indeed as accomplished, still more as immortal Eve, this may be. As an immortal, she may also know and inspire immortal love, a happiness not to be dreamed of under the circumstances advised in the last quotation. Where love is based on concealment it must of course disappear when the soul enters the scene of clear vision. And without this hope, how worthless every plan, every bond, every power! The giants, said the Scandinavian saga, had induced Loki, the spirit that hovers between good and ill, to steal for them Iduna, goddess of immortality, and her apples of pure gold. He lured her out by promising to show on a marvellous tree he had discovered apples beautiful as her own, if she would only take them with her for a comparison. 
Thus, having lured her beyond the heavenly domain, she was seized and carried away captive by the powers of misrule. As now the gods could not find their friend Iduna, they were confused with grief. Indeed, they began visibly to grow old and grey. Discords arose, and love grew cold. Indeed, Odor, spouse of the goddess of love and beauty, wandered away and returned no more. At last, however, the gods, discovering the treachery of Loki, obliged him to win back Iduna from the prison in which she sat mourning. He changed himself into a falcon, and brought her back as a swallow, fiercely pursued by the giant king in the form of an eagle. So she strives to return among us, light and small as a swallow. We must welcome her form as the speck on the sky that assures the glad blue of summer. Yet one swallow does not make a summer. Let us solicit them in flights and flocks. Returning from the future to the present, let us see what forms Iduna takes, as she moves along the declivity of centuries to the valley where the lily-flower may concentrate all its fragrance. It would seem as if this time were not very near to one fresh from books, such as I have of late been. No, not reading, but sighing over. A crowd of books having been sent me since my friends knew me to be engaged in this way, on woman's sphere, woman's mission, and woman's destiny. I believe that almost all that is extant of formal precept has come under my eye. Among these I read with refreshment a little one called The Whole Duty of Woman, indicted by a noble lady at the request of a noble lord, and which has this much of nobleness, that the view it takes is a religious one. It aims to fit woman for heaven. The main bent of most of the others is to fit her to please, or at least not to disturb, a husband. Among these I select, as a favourable specimen, the book I have already quoted, The Study of the Life of Woman, by Madame Necker de Saussure of Geneva, translated from the French. This book was published at Philadelphia, and has been read with much favour here. Madame Necker is the cousin of Madame de Stal, and has taken from her works the motto prefixed to this. Cette vie n'a quelque prix que si elle sert à l'éducation morale de notre cœur. Madame Necker is by nature capable of entire consistency in the application of this motto, and therefore the qualifications she makes in the instructions given to her own sex show forcibly the weight which still paralyzes and distorts the energies of that sex. The book is rich in passages marked by feeling and good suggestions, but taken in the whole, the impression it leaves is this. Woman is and shall remain inferior to man and subject to his will and in endeavouring to aid her, we must anxiously avoid anything that can be misconstrued into expression of the contrary opinion, else the men will be alarmed, and combine to defeat our efforts. The present is a good time for these efforts, for men are less occupied about women than formerly. Let us then seize upon the occasion, and do what we can to make our lot tolerable. But we must sedulously avoid encroaching on the territory of man, if we study natural history our observations may be made useful by some male naturalist. If we draw well, we may make our services acceptable to the artists. But our names must not be known. And to bring these labours to any result we must take some man for our head, and be his hands. The lot of woman is sad. She is constituted to expect and need a happiness that cannot exist on earth. She must stifle such aspirations within her secret heart and fit herself as well as she can for a life of resignations and consolations. 
She will be very lonely while living with her husband. She must not expect to open her heart to him fully, or that after marriage he will be capable of the refined service of love. The man is not born for the woman, only the woman for the man. Men cannot understand the hearts of women. The life of woman must be outwardly a well-intentioned, cheerful dissimulation of her real life. Naturally the feelings of the mother at the birth of a female child resemble those of the Paraguay woman, described by Southey as lamenting in such heart-breaking tones that her mother did not kill her the hour she was born. Her mother, who knew what this life of a woman must be. Or of those women seen at the North by Sir A. Mackenzie, who performed this pious duty towards female infants whenever they had an opportunity. After the first delight, the young mother experiences feelings a little different, according as the birth of a son or daughter has been announced. Is it a son? A sort of glory swells at this thought the heart of the mother. She seems to feel that she is entitled to gratitude. She has given a citizen, a defender to her country, to her husband an heir of his name, to herself a protector. And yet the contrast of all these fine titles with this being so humble soon strikes her. At the aspect of this frail treasure, opposite feelings agitate her heart. She seems to recognize in him a nature superior to her own, but subjected to a low condition, and she honors a future greatness in the object of extreme compassion. Somewhat of respect and adoration for a feeble child, of which some fine pictures offer the expression in the features of the happy Mary, seem reproduced with the young mother who has given birth to a son. Is it a daughter? There is usually a slight degree of regret. So deeply rooted is the idea of the superiority of man in happiness and dignity. And yet, as she looks upon this child, she is more and more softened towards it. A deep sympathy, a sentiment of identity with this delicate being, takes possession of her. An extreme pity for so much weakness, a more pressing need of prayer, stirs her heart. Whatever sorrow she may have felt, she dreads for her daughter. But she will guide her to become much wiser, much better than herself. And then the gaiety, the frivolity of the young woman have their turn. This little creature is a flower to cultivate, a doll to decorate. Similar sadness at the birth of a daughter I have heard mothers express not unfrequently. As to this living so entirely for men, I should think when it was proposed to women that they would feel at least some spark of the old spirit of races allied to our own. If he is to be my bridegroom and lord, cries Brunhilda, he must first be able to pass through fire and water. I will serve at the banquet, says the Valkyrie, but only him who, in the trial of deadly combat, has shown himself a hero. If women are to be bondmaids, let it be to men superior to women in fortitude, in aspiration, in moral power, in refined sense of beauty. You who give yourselves to be supported, or because one must love something, are they who make the lot of the sex such that mothers are sad when daughters are born. It marks the state of feeling on this subject that it was mentioned, as a bitter censure on a woman who had influence over those younger than herself. She makes those girls want to see heroes. And will that hurt them? Certainly, how can you ask? They will find none, and so they will never be married. Get married is the usual phrase, and the one that correctly indicates the thought. But the speakers on this occasion were persons too outwardly refined to use it. They were ashamed of the word, but not of the thing. Madame Necker, however, sees a good possibility in celibacy. 
Indeed, I know not how the subject could be better illustrated than by separating the wheat from the chaff in Madame Necker's book. Place them in two heaps, and then summon the reader to choose, giving him a first a near-sighted glass to examine the two. It might be a Christian, an astronomical, or an artistic glass. Any kind of good glass to obviate acquired defects to the eye. I would lay any wager on the result. But time permits not here a prolonged analysis. I have given the clues for fault-finding. As a specimen of the good take the following passage on the phenomena of what I have spoken of as the lyrical or electrical element in woman. Women have been seen to show themselves poets in the most pathetic pantomimic scenes, where all the passions were depicted full of beauty, and these poets used a language unknown to themselves, and the performance once over, their inspiration was a forgotten dream. Without doubt there is an interior development to being so gifted, but their sole mode of communication with us is their talent. They are, ill all besides, the inhabitants of another planet. Similar observations have been made by those who have seen the women at Irish wakes, or the funeral ceremonies of modern Greece or Brittany, at times when excitement gave the impulse to genius but apparently without a thought that these rare powers belonged to no other planet but were a high development of the growth of this, and might, by wise and reverent treatment, be made to inform and embellish the scenes of every day. But when woman has her fair chance, she will do so, and the poem of the hour will vie with that of the ages. I come now with satisfaction to my own country, and to a writer, a female writer, whom I have selected as the clearest, wisest, and kindliest, who has shown as yet used pen here on these subjects. This is Miss Sedgwick. Miss Sedgwick, though she inclines to the private path, and wishes that, by the cultivation of character, might should vindicate right, sets limits nowhere, and her objects and inducements are pure. They are the free and careful cultivation of the powers that have been given, with an aim at moral and intellectual perfection. Her speech is moderate and sane, but never palsied by fear or sceptical caution. Herself a fine example of the independent and beneficent existence that intellect and character can give to woman, no less than man, if she know how to seek and prize it, also that the intellect need not absorb or weaken, but rather will refine and invigorate the affections. The teachings of her practical good sense come with great force, and cannot fail to avail much. Every way her writings please me both as to the means and the ends. I am pleased at the stress she lays on observance of the physical laws, because the true reason is given. Only in a strong and clean body can the soul do its message fitly. She shows the meaning of the respect paid to personal neatness, both in the indispensable form of cleanliness, and of that love of order and arrangement, that must issue from a true harmony of feeling. The praises of cold water seem to me an excellent sign in the age. They denote a tendency to the true life. We are now to have, as a remedy for ills, not orvietin or opium, or any quack medicine, but plenty of air and water, with due attention to warmth and freedom in the dress, and simplicity of diet. Every day we observe signs that the natural feelings on these subjects are about to be reinstated, and the body to claim care as the abode and organ of the soul not as the tool of servile labour, or the object of voluptuous indulgence. A poor woman, who had passed through the lowest grades of ignominy, seemed to think she had never been wholly lost. For, she said, I would always have good underclothes. 
and indeed who could doubt that this denoted the remains of private self-respect in the mind. A woman of excellent sense said, it might seem childish, but to her one of the most favourable signs of the times was that ladies had been persuaded to give up corsets. Yes, let us give up all artificial means of distortion. Let life be healthy, pure, all of a piece. Miss Sedgwick, in teaching that domestics must have the means of bathing as much as their mistresses, and time, too, to bathe, has symbolized one of the most important of human rights. Another interesting sign of the time is the influence exercised by two women, Miss Martineau and Miss Barrett, from their sick-rooms. The lamp of life, which, if it had been fed only by the affections, depended on precarious human relations, would scarce have been able to maintain a feeble glare in the lonely prison, now shines far and wide over the nations, cheering fellow-sufferers and hallowing the joy of the healthful. These persons need not health or youth, or the charms of personal presence, to make their thoughts available. A few more such, and old woman shall not be the synonym for imbecility, nor old maid a term of contempt, nor woman be spoken of as a reed shaken by the wind. It is time indeed that men and women should both cease to grow old in any other way than as the tree does, full of grace and honour. The hair of the artist turns white, but his eye shines clearer than ever, and we feel that age brings him maturity, not decay. So would it be with all were the springs of immortal refreshment but unsealed within the soul. Then like these women they would see from the lonely chamber window the glories of the universe, or, shut in darkness, be visited by angels. I now touch on my own place and day, and as I write, events are occurring that threaten the fair fabric approached by so long an avenue. Week before last the Gentiles requested to aid the Jew to return to Palestine. For the millennium, the reign of the son of Mary was near. Just now, at high and solemn mass, thanks were returned to the Virgin for having delivered O'Connell from unjust imprisonment in requital of his having consecrated to her the league formed in behalf of liberty on Taras Hill. But last week brought news which threatens that a cause identical with the enfranchisement of Jews, Irish, women, ay, and of Americans in general, too, is in danger, for the choice of the people threatens to rivet the chains of slavery and the leprosy of sin permanently on this nation, through the annexation of Texas. Ah, if this should take place! Who will dare again to feel the throb of heavenly hope as to the destiny of this country? The noble thought that gave unity to all our knowledge, harmony to all our designs, the thought that the progress of history had brought on the era, the tissue of prophecies pointed out the spot where humanity was at last to have a fair chance to know itself, and all men be born free and equal for the eagle's flight, flutters as if about to leave the breast, which, deprived of it, will have no more a nation no more a home on earth. Women of my country, exaltadas, if such there be, women of English, old English nobleness, who understand the courage of Boadicea, the sacrifice of Godiva, the power of Queen Emma to tread the red-hot iron unharmed, women who share the nature of Mrs. Hutchinson, Lady Russell, and the mothers of our own revolution, have you nothing to do with this? You see the men, how they are willing to sell shamelessly the happiness of countless generations of fellow-creatures, the honour of their country, and their immortal souls, for a money-market and political power. 
Do you not feel within you that which can reprove them, which can check, which can convince them? You would not speak in vain, whether each in her own home, or banded in unison. Tell these men that you will not accept the glittering baubles, spacious dwellings, and plentiful service they mean to offer you through those means. Tell them that the heart of woman demands nobleness and honour in man, and that if they have not purity, have not mercy, they are no longer fathers, lovers, husbands, sons of yours. This cause is your own. For, as I have before said, there is a reason why the foes of African slavery seek more freedom for women. But put it not upon that ground, but on the ground of right. If you have a power, it is a moral power. The films of interest are not so close around you as around the men. If you will but think, you cannot fail to wish to save the country from this disgrace. Let not slip the occasion but do something to lift off the curse incurred by Eve. You have heard the women engaged in the abolition movement accused of boldness, because they lifted the voice in public, and lifted the latch of the stranger. But were these acts, whether performed judiciously or no, so bold as to dare before God and man to partake the fruits of such offence as this? You hear much of the modesty of your sex. Preserve it by filling the mind with noble desires that shall ward off the corruptions of vanity and idleness. A profligate woman, who left her accustomed haunts and took service in a New York boarding-house, said she had never heard talk so vile at the five points as from the ladies at the boarding-house. And why? Because they were idle. Because having nothing worthy to engage them they dwelt with unnatural curiosity on the ill they dared not go to see. It will not so much injure your modesty to have your name by the unthinking coupled with idle blame, as to have upon your soul the weight of not trying to save a whole race of women from the scorn that is put upon their modesty. Think of this well. I entreat you, I conjure you, before it is too late. It is my belief that something effectual might be done by women, if they would only consider the subject, and enter upon it in the true spirit a spirit gentle, but firm, and which feared the offence of none, save one who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. End of section 11